All right. <clears throat> are you guys ready? I am. I know you are. Look, these guys are over here just talking away. <laughs> yep. All right. Very good. Uh, everybody have a good week? Yeah? Yeah? Good. Good. Yep. Fair enough. Yeah, no, I was sick for the past couple days. Huh? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I was like, it was head cold. Just stuffy nose, you know? It's so annoying. So I've been like a little under the weather and just tired. Yes. Yeah, I suppose so. Under bad weather. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's all right. So this week, I think, I hope anyway, we're going to finish up verse 8. We should definitely do that. We're almost done with verse 8 anyway, which is the central focus of Micah chapter 6. And then we're going to move on to the second half or third part of Micah 6, where God issues his specific charges against uh, Judah and then sentences them. We'll probably get to the specific charges part today and not to the uh, sentencing. But this, uh, <laughs> that's 9 to 16. In 9 to uh, 11, the Hebrew apparently is just all over the place. Like it can mean so many things. It's very difficult, very difficult to, to translate, I suppose. So we'll look at that and then we'll talk about it. But let's pray and then we'll read all of Micah 6 just to renew context. All right, and, and then we can look at verse 8, finish that up, and then move on from there. So let's, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we thank you that we could come and gather together as your people. We thank you, Lord God, that you uh, called us uh, to be a people, Father. We were also uh, different and disparate, Lord God, and yet you've made us into one people, Lord, through uh, your Son, Lord, and through your Spirit, Father God, and we thank you that we are united in Him, that we are truly a holy nation, Lord, and we pray, Father, as we look into your uh, Word, that you would guide us and teach us and help us to understand, um, well, what it is that you do require of us, Lord, and what you expect of men in this, in this uh, troubled time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So, reading, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, reading Micah 6. Hear what the Lord says. <clears throat> Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. The Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. 
O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will <clears throat> the people be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? <clears throat> shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and loving kindness, or loving faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God, or faithful love, however you want to put it. <clears throat> the voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it, is a, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Here, this is where it gets interesting. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of the wicked, of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouths. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give up to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but drink no wine, for you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. All right. So, just out of curiosity, who has a different translation other than the ESV? What do you got? What does 9 to 11 say? Interesting. Yeah, it's completely different, right? Yep. That's funny, yeah. And uh, it gets even more different <laughs> later. Uh, we could go through, or we're going to go through and talk about what it could mean um, in each case. So it's very interesting stuff. Anyway, so let's go back to verse 8 and, uh, and continue on. Because remember, we said that this chapter here, this section, is set up chiastically. And the heart of this chiasm is verse 8. So that means we must uh, pay close attention to it. It is the heart of what's being said here. Everything else in this section must be understood in light of this verse. Alright, so when we look at it, what do we see? Well, firstly, let's look at 6 and 7 again, just briefly, and, and, and compare the two. 
Because in verses 6 and 7, we have uh, Judah saying, well, all right, God has these, this problem with us, and how can we be forgiven? How can we be justified? What, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Right? How do I get right with God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? See, we are escalating in our um, sacrifices, our giving. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Right? So again, there's another escalation. Right? We're telescoping here, getting bigger and bigger and bigger. See, and what we understand from this as we read this, right? generally speaking, when you try to appease a god, right, the more elaborate the gift, the more pleased the god is, right? That's the pagan conception of gods, right? So you, oh, I don't know, let's say you're on a ship and it's being storm-tossed, right, and you're all worried and you want to appease the gods of the sea, and the storm. So you make your vows, and if it doesn't work, you make more elaborate vows, right? That's how those things generally work. And then you keep going until, you know, you're offering them everything. If you just get you through it, right? And that's, that's the idea that's being presented here. But God isn't like the pagan gods, is he? No. They were supposed to remember what God did for them before. And that's what verses 3 to 5 are about. God reminds them of the mercy that he showed to them via his covenantal promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? He showed them compassion. He showed them mercy. Not because they're a great nation. Not because they were the best on the earth. They were the smallest and least. Right? but because of his covenantal faithfulness. And what does God require of them? Right? He saved them to be a very specific and particular people. And they were to do very specific and particular tasks. Right? And in verse 8, we see what those tasks are. And he told them before. They were supposed to remember this. They were supposed to know these things. Right? Even back in... Uh, the law it says these things are not far from you. They're in your mouth and in your heart, right? You're supposed to know this stuff in here, right? They're, they're supposed to have this understanding. And later, right, they had the example of Saul. He was commanded to kill off the Amalekites completely, devote them to utter destruction. And yet he spared the king, and he spared the cattle, the best of the cattle. And what did he tell Samuel when Samuel confronted him? He said, oh, we saved these as a sacrifice, right? And what was God's response? God said, I require or, uh, obedience and not sacrifice, right? So they were supposed to know these things. So what does God require of them? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And last week, we just mentioned that uh, the language here, speaking about the language, right? 
oh man, he uses the word Adam, right, as opposed to ish in terms of man. Harkening us back to, well, the first man, right? The man that was created good. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And Adam was created good. And remember what Israel was supposed to be. They were supposed to be a new Adam. The creation of Israel, the foundation of Israel as a nation, was a new creation, was a recreation of the world, an establishment of a new Adam to fulfill the original purpose that Adam was given. Because after the fall, Adam's purpose was, well, sort of broken. He failed to accomplish his task. So God reinstituted a people and made a new Adam in order to fulfill the original task that was given to man. And yet they violated the covenant. They broke it. They failed as well. But here he's telling them what that covenant entailed. What are they supposed to do? What does God require of them? But to do justice and faithful love. Or, yeah, we'll use that. And faithful love. And to walk circumspectly with God. So this is, again, this is covenantal in, nation, in nature. And, and when we talk about justice, when we talk about faithfulness and, and those things, right? Justice doesn't just mean, uh, you know, retributive justice, like the court system, right? Justice is just how you deal with your fellow men in general, right? Giving to people what they're due, right? For instance, this is a sin that I committed yesterday, right? I was unjust towards my wife yesterday, right? I was not feeling well. I had to go to get up early, go to work. I got home, and I was crotchety, very cranky, right? And she tries to joke around with me and be nice, and I you know, was snappish towards her. That was unjust treatment of her. She didn't deserve the way I treated her. You know what I mean? Well, that was a sin on my part. I failed at this point. I became less than a man, as it were. Definitely less than a good man. I was following my baser instincts, right? Not walking circumspectly before God. Not giving her her due, as it were. You know? So, this goes down to those simple interactions that we have on a daily basis. Now, I mean, is there ever time to be peevish or snappish towards people? Actually, there is probably a, a, a time when that, that behavior is called for. We see, uh, we see various prophets behaving in that manner towards people, right? We see Christ himself behaving in that manner towards the Pharisees. I'm not saying he's peevish towards them, but he does snap at them. You know when the when it is you know, called for, but that takes wisdom as well. It takes the second part, but walking circumspectly before God to understand when to use, as Doug Wilson puts it, the serrated edge, and when to you know use a gentle tongue. It takes wisdom to understand these things, but loving kindness or faithful love. This is a covenantal love, right? This is a love that is bound by the covenant. Just remember what does what the covenant consists of, right? In terms of the law, uh, you know, what did Christ say? What is the law? 
Well, how does it boil down? How do we boil down the law? How did Jesus boil down the law? What are the two great commandments, God? That's right. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summation of the law. That's interesting, right? If you think about it. The law is summed up by love. That's what Paul says as well. Right? So when we speak about faithful love, this is a covenantal faithfulness. This is an obedience to the covenant, being covenantally faithful. Uh, all covenants require faithfulness. Right? Um, the best and easiest example of this is <laughs> that where we use this language is a marriage. Right? You have a faithful spouse. You are entered into a covenant with your spouse, and you remain faithful to that person because this, there is a covenantal love that exists between you and your spouse. And that's the, that's the kind of love that's being spoken of here, that faithful love. And we know, well, if we're going to talk about snapping at people, you know, using that my old language, um, if we talk about giving people their due, especially when they wrong you, right? Well, we're told that love covers a multitude of sins, right? So you can show someone love faithfully and covenantally by forgiving wrongs that are done to you. And we should do that in, in a, as a matter of course. However, there are times where, as Rob knows, my wife knows, you do need to stand up for yourself, right? Where you have been wronged and you do need to take a stand. Right, both are suffering the consequences of an overreaching and overbearing government. So, it takes wisdom though, right? It takes that walking circumspectly with your God, walking humbly with God. Now, um, just to finish this section up, I want to read what someone says about that walking circumspectly part, right? This is from uh, a commentator named H. Uh, what H. J. Stobe. Right? He says the expression, you know, about walking humbly. The expression ought to be understood in connection with verses three to five. Right? God's reminding them what He did for them. Right? Which names Yahweh's saving acts and signifies a walk with God, which insightfully recognizes God's gifts and accepts the consequences that proceed from, uh, from that for one's behavior even toward other human beings. So it requires, or at least uh, we should have the understanding that walking circumspectly or walking wisely or humbly before God is in light of his past saving actions. Remember, this is covenantal. Right? It's in light of his past saving actions and being able to un or have the understanding that there are consequences for our actions. Right? We, we ask the question, I mean, it has been beaten and became a, almost a byword, right? What would Jesus do? Yeah? Well, the, 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 idea is <clears throat> the idea is not necessarily what would Jesus do, but would God be pleased with this, right? That, having that in the back of your mind, having the understanding, well, part of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength 
is the desire, having the desire, the, the self-awareness of knowing that God is watching and judging and doing that which is pleasing to him or having it in your mind that you want to do that which is pleasing to him, right? Not just going off and doing what you feel at the moment, which is a major problem with our society now, you know? Man, it's a major problem with our society. I mean, it's, it's to the point where you can't really even have conversations with people because of how they feel, right? You know, this, it's, it's, it's almost absurd. I, just recently, there was a prize fight, right? A boxing match. And it's two heavyweights were contending for, for a title. And the one guy, there was bad blood between them, you know? And the one guy beat the other guy fair and square. I mean, knocked him out cold. It's a pretty fair way to beat somebody. There was no, you know, controversy with the judges or anything like that. No, he knocked him out. And then he goes to shake the guy's hand. You know, the guy who won goes to shake the loser's hand. And the loser says, I don't respect you. Like that. Just, I don't respect you. No, not doing it. Refused to shake his hand, you know. And, I mean, that's, obviously, that's poor sportsmanship, you know. Very poor sportsmanship. Refused to acknowledge the guy's victory. So, anyway, go and, you know, there's this made the news, of course, and all that, right? Reading the commentary from just regular people, so many people supported the poor sports because he was just doing how he felt. He was, you know, keeping it real, as they say, you know? It's like, that's... That's not good, <laughs> you know, to support that. To say that, yeah, he shouldn't have shook his hand if he didn't feel like it. He was just being real to himself. It's like, that's really dangerous. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's the, dis- that's the destruction of a civil society. Um, yeah. But I don't want to get too sidetracked with that. Uh, that's a... <laughs> utter violation of pretty much everything that we see in verse 8 here, okay? Now, is there any comments about this verse? I mean, this is the most important verse that's in this passage that we're reading, right? Probably the most important verse in all of the book of Micah. It's the central focus of, of, of this. This is this God's summation of the law again. And this is how we should live our lives, day by day, moment by moment, you know. So if there's no comments on it, if there's no questions about it, go ahead. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. All right. Yeah. Okay. No. No, he doesn't need our obedience to fulfill his will. Right? I mean, a prime example of this would be the disobedience of the sons of Jacob in selling Joseph into slavery. Right? And what did Joseph say later on? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Right? They were completely disobedient to the righteous law of God, and yet God 
through his own wisdom and counsel, used their evil intention to fulfill his good intention. Right? So, no. No, he does not. However, your good actions cannot be seen as being derivative of what's in here, you know, of yourself. They come from God as well, yeah? I mean, what is the first, uh, I don't know, what does the T in tulip stand for, yeah? <laughs> right. <laughs> Total depravity, yeah? It means every aspect of you is opposed to God and his will and his law. So every desire that is good, every, uh, and this goes for the non-believer as well, you yeah? Like if a non-believer shows mercy or love or whatever, even if their intention is selfish, right? If their motivations are selfish or not um, appropriate, right? But their action is still good. Well, that's a mercy. That's a what we call common grace, right? Right, yeah. Yet if we obeyed, we would be, uh, the, the action of obedience mm -hmm. brings peace to us. Right. Yeah, there's, a, there's an expression that's not used so much today anymore, which is a pity, right? And it's blessed, right? Or blessed, however you want to say it. Um, the good life was always seen as the blessed life, right? Uh, God is, was called for a long time the blessed one. Right? One at perfect peace, at perfect happiness, right? As a matter of fact, um, when we talk about the Beatitudes, right, when, when Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek and blessed are the pure in heart and blessed, etc., right, that can be translated, happy are the meek and happy are the pure in heart. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because, like you said, um, when you are walking this way, that inner, that peace that you receive, that um, you're at peace with the world around you, you know, you're at peace with God and you're at peace with yourself, you know, you're, you're content, you know, no matter what your situation is, you are, and you remain content, your conscience is clear. There's nothing better than having a clear conscience where you can be you guys would know, violently persecuted, right? But if you are standing righteously with a good conscience before God, you know, even the whips that are used against you are a source of joy, you know? It sounds, how do you put it? Yeah, it sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. I mean, has anyone ever experienced that where um, you know you're right and everyone around you is wrong and you stick to your guns and they call you names or whatever else, but then you're justified and it's like, ha, you know? You ever experienced that? No? <laughs> it's, 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 it's like that, yeah, but on a 
much more deep level. All right. So let's move on now because I do want to continue uh, to verses 9 to 16. So the voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is a sound, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. So here, now we have God directly addressing the city, as opposed to calling Micah to uh, plead your case before the mountains. Now God is directly addressing the city, which would be the leaders of the people, the high and mighty in this place. Go ahead. That is a parenthesis, yes. Yeah, it is a parenthesis. It's a, um, it's a sidebar, right? Yeah, it can be translated as um, the one who fears you is, oh, how, do you, how would you put this? <sighs> yeah, it doesn't matter. It's the, what, what's translated here works, right? And it is sound wisdom to fear your name. And this is, this is a direct, well, again, as we said, it's a sidebar. Mike is throwing this in there, bringing our attention back to verse 8. So what must be understood from what's going to be said in 10 to 16 has to be understood in light of verse 8. Remember that walk humbly part with your God is walking wisely, can be translated as walking wisely with your God. And it is sound wisdom to fear your name, right? So Mike is connecting these things for us. So what is about to be said by God must be understood in light of what was previously said in terms of what God requires of man. Now, what he says here, right? All right, now this, now this is where it gets funny, unfortunately. So we're probably not going to get into the good stuff about this, or at least the application part of this. We're just probably going to be talking about how this is translated. But uh, hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. That's a very weird way to say that. It's awkward, right? It could be translated, heed the rod and he who appointed it, right? The rod being Assyria at this point and God who appointed it. That makes sense, especially in light of um, it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Heed the rod and, and him who appointed it. Or it could be translated as listen tribe and the assembly of the city. Those are radically different, but it could be translated either way, the way the Hebrew is set up, right? So, you know, people have to use their best judgment there. Uh, now verse 10, the translation of this is also fascinating. In the ESV, it says, Can I forget any longer the treasures of, the wicked, of wickedness in the house of the wicked? This is interesting. Can I forget? Can also be translated depending on how you render it in the Hebrew. Because remember, in Hebrew, they didn't put vowels in. So depending on which vowels you use, uh, it could be translated, Can I forget? Or, Shall I forgive? Right? It could be translated either way. Shall I forget, ha, essa, right? Or shall I forgive, ha, essa, right? You know, literally, that's how it would be. It'd be E-S-S-A or E-S-S-E-H, you know, using the whatever, English. So 
shall I forget or shall I forgive? And then it says, well, any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked. It's just, this is disputed. I mean, you could, it, even the way this is worded, are there in the house of the wicked treasures of wickedness or are there, comma, house of the wicked, comma, treasures of wickedness? Like God is addressing the house of the wicked, right? Are there treasures in the house of, or are, are there in the house of the wicked treasures of wickedness? Are there house of the wicked treasures of wickedness, right? It could be said either way, even translating it this way. But it could also be, uh, be um, unjust, uh, house of the wicked could also be unjust baths, right? Uh, a bath is a liquid measure, right? It is, uh, let's see, you have bet. Resa, which is house of wickedness, or bat resa, which is unjust bath with the liquid measure, which makes some sense because in the latter part of the verse it says the scant measure, right? That's literally the scant ephah, which is the dry measure. And they both, bath and an ephah, are a tenth of a homer, yeah? So it's, it's their equivalent in terms of liquid measure and dry measure, go ahead. Could it be that, you know, poetic? Yes, it's a play on words, absolutely. Yeah, definitely, I would say it's a play on words. Yeah, yeah most definitely. It, they, most of these are, you know, especially when they're very difficult to translate like that. They're plays on words, like they're, it's done intentionally by the author. What's up? Yeah, right, exactly. Exactly, right? Because it's meant to make you stop and think about what's being said, right? That, go ahead. What are the treasures of the What's that? What are the Ill-gotten gains. Yeah. So that would be treasure. Oh, and that, that brings us to the next part, right? Treasures. That word treasures there is... Man, I'm going to continue butchering the Hebrew. It's all right, though. Uh, Oserot, which means granaries or commonly treasures. So, <laughs> you know what a granary is, right? The place where you store grain. Yeah, okay. So, that works as well. It's one of those things. It's tough. This one's tough to, to translate, right? And we have the scant ephah, which is the dry measure, which is accursed. The scant ephah, that is accursed, right? So, can I forget or can I forgive any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? You could use that. That's fine. That works. Um, and the scant measure that is accursed. And verse 11 also gets interesting. Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Does anybody have anything else there in their version? No? Okay. Uh, I have, like, sh shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Can I justify this wicked scale and the bag? Okay. All right. That, that, that actually is closer to 
uh, where this comes from, right? This comes from the Vulgate, yeah? Um, because the Hebrews seems questionable here, right? I mean, depending on how you want to read it. Uh, that comes like directly from the Vulgate, from uh, our, 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 our forebear, yeah, St. Jerome, so, which says, I shall not justify the wicked balance, shall I, right? That's a direct translation of the Vulgate. Um, but that requires what, what's called an emendation, right? They had to add some letters to what's being said in the, in the Masoretic in order to make that work because um, if we just take what the Masoretic says, it says, and, the, and this requires a direct connection between 10 and 11, you know, the whole can I forget it needs to be can I forgive. Um, and, and the idea is if I forgive, right, and that would be in parentheses, that's not in the Hebrew, but it comes directly from verse 10. If I forgive, would I be acquitted of your unjust scales is how it would be translated if we take it directly from the Masoretic, which people didn't like too much. You know, God saying, should I be innocent of your unjust scales? That doesn't sound right to a lot of people. So, go ahead. I still think it works. It because does. God is, he's making a very uh, strong point here right. of his righteousness weighing against, no pun intended, yeah. <laughs> weighing against the wickedness of believers and what they've done to the people. Right. Absolutely. Go ahead. That works, yes. No, it's true. Uh, it should be. It should be. You should probably just stick to the Masoretic, you know what I mean? And just say what it says, regardless of our theological qualms with it. You know, God asking if he should be held innocent doesn't sound right to a lot of theologians, so they translated it differently. They said, ah, I couldn't have meant that. So they added a, what's called the emendation. They added some letters to the thing in order to make it say something else, yeah. That happens, unfortunately. Um, but the idea is, I mean, I'll just say what it would be, right? All right, so if we, if we take the, what the Masoretic actually says, ha eska, all right, that's, that's what it says. Should I be found, should I be innocent, right? Held innocent, uh, shall, I be, shall I be acquitted? Versus the emendation, ha eske nu, right? They added the little N there, which, you know, whatever. But so if we if we just understand it from the Hebrew that is ex that exists, anyways, is if I forgive, would I be acquitted of your unjust scales? And with a bag or a leather pouch of full of, you know, unjust or wicked or deceptive stones, weights. Yeah, you know what's funny. I actually have one. I have a leather pouch that is full of unjust scales, weights, right here. See? <laughs> it's true. Yeah, see, it's a leather pouch full of unjust weights. What's that? 
Would it help? Yeah, it would help actually. That's funny. That's funny. Right. Yeah. But we'll talk. That's where we'll pick up, I guess, next week. We'll talk about what that means for us, right? Or what, what this actually is meaning. We'll, let's discuss that right now. And then we'll pick up and talk about how this applies to us today. Yeah. So what does it mean to have unjust weights and measures? Well, if you're a trader, right? And you're buying someone's, I don't know, dry goods. You're buying their grain. And they come to you selling their grain. So if you're a wicked trader, if you're an unjust trader, what you'd want to do is have a, you know, a light scale as you buy their grain. So they're selling you more of their grain for whatever price. You know, the price, let's say, let's say we'll use pounds just because we're all familiar with pounds. Let's say, uh, oh, I don't know, um, 10 pounds of grain is $5, yeah? And you have a light $5, so they keep loading that, that uh, you have a light weight, so they keep loading it to, f am I saying that? Yeah, to fill that up. And then, you have that backwards. Yeah, I do. Thank you. <laughs> you have a heavier weight, yeah? Uh, so they keep loading it up to balance the scale. Your, your 10 pounds is really, let's say, 12 pounds. So you're getting two extra pounds for the price of, of 10, yeah? Does that make sense? All right, that's an unjust weight, obviously. You're cheating the person who's selling to you. And if you're selling, you use a lightweight, right? So you're selling less for... Uh, more money, yeah? Go ahead. Uh, example today, yeah. Uh, when you go to get cold cuts, yes. and they put a sheet of paper on that scale, mm -hmm. before they put the cold cuts on, they zero that out. Yes, they do. So you're not paying the poundage price for the paper. Right. That's, yes. Right. That's true. That's true. What movie was that? Where, uh, some gangster movie, where he's just buying cold cuts and just stick something in in the scale, so it doesn't, you know, go down all the way. I can't remember, but, it, but that's that's the that's exactly the idea that's being being spoken of there, right? But we don't really do that so much anymore, you know. We don't really go to the store and haggle with somebody, and you know, they actually weigh it out for you. You're not going to buy your flour from from somebody, you know. It's all set in poundage for you right there, uh, and you just pay whatever's there. And the price fluctuates so much that it really doesn't even matter. Uh, but it, it's really for us where where it matters is in that price price fluctuation. You know? for us where it matters is um, the reason the price fluctuates so much is because our uh, government, with the aid of what we call like you know the Federal Reserve, which is not even part of the government, um, manipulates the currency. Yeah. So your currency, your dollar, is less or more valuable depending upon the way it's been manipulated that day. And we'll talk a bit about that and how that applies to our unjust weights and measures and what uh, a Christian response is to something like that. All right? So are there any comments or questions up to this point? Because I know that we're talking a little, we got, you know, somewhat technical, not overly technical in terms of what the Hebrew is. Is when we read a scripture, you know, we have to understand that we're reading a translation. 
you know? So it's hard for translators, especially when multiple things could be said. And a lot of times, especially in the Hebrew, multiple things were being said intentionally because, as we said, they're plays on words. They're meant to make you stop and think about what's going on there. Um, and a lot of times, well, we say it could mean this or it could mean that. But the answer is it means both of those things. Both of those things are being said intentionally by the author. You know, the idea is connected, but he's presenting two different uh, points. I suppose you could say. What were you going to say? Right. Because the version he has, it seems at first glance to read totally different. Sure. Sure. But I find that beneficial because when you go back into it and really think about the words, it's easily pretty much equated right. to what, what you're reading in, in your version. Right, yeah. That's why it's always beneficial when you're doing your studies, especially if you don't read the original languages, to have multiple translations of, of the text. And everybody has a smartphone. You can just go and you can, you know read different versions side by side, you know, as you go. So you could see, get, get a fuller sense of what's being said there, you know. It's good to ask those questions. Right. It makes you think about the meaning. Absolutely. And then at the same time, too, though, sometimes the translations are just, like, way off, and they need to be discounted. Um, so commentaries are helpful for, for those reasons. But, at the same, uh, but you have to use your best judgment, you know, regardless, no matter what. Anytime you're doing uh, interpretation, you must always just use your best judgment. Um, I mean, for instance, personally speaking, like uh, this one, Proverbs 10.10, 10, yeah? I reject the reading of the Masoretic text because I don't think it makes a lick of sense. Not a lick. I think it's a scribal error. If you read Proverbs 10, it's always antithetical parallelism. Every single verse in it is antithetically, is antithetical parallel, right? But but ten ten says, whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. Well, these two things are not antithetical, and they don't even they don't make sense together. But if you go back to verse eight, what you see is this: the wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. And then 10.10, whoever winks the eye causes trouble, and a babbling fool will come to ruin. Yeah, so it's repeated there. Why is it repeated? I think it's just described screwed up. Right? But if you go to the, uh, the Septuagint, you see this. Whoever winks the eye causes trouble, but he who reproves openly brings peace. Well, that makes a whole lot more sense in light of the rest of the text. You know what I mean? So I'd, I'd personally accept the Septuagintal reading of this one as opposed to the Masoretic reading, you know? But unfortunately, all of our translations, say for if they're translating the Septuagint intentionally, will go with the Masoretic, you know? But then again, you use best judgment. But, you know, whatever. All right, we're, we're gonna pray and close, and then, uh, like I said, next week we'll talk about the application of these things, and then speak about the sentences that God uh, passed upon the people who did these things. And we'll see if they have any application for us. Yeah? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the wisdom that's found in it, Lord God, and we pray, Lord, that we can be a people who does walk wisely before you, be a people who um, does justice and loving faithfulness, Father God. We pray that we would be a people that's marked out by obedience, Father. And Lord, um, that through our actions, through the way that we live uh, in this world, Father God, that your kingdom would be advanced, that our neighbors might see and, and question, Lord, and that we might be able to give them a wise response and tell them about our Lord, Father, and that those who are yours would hear and come and join us, Father. But now, as we seek to worship you, uh, Lord, we pray that you would be pleased with our worship, that you would be honored and glorified and magnified uh, as we come before you, that you would hear our prayers and that you would um, receive our songs, Father God, and that as um, you speak, Father, through our pastor, that you might grow that word that is going to be sown into our hearts into life, Father God, that we might be made more um, into the image well, and likeness of Christ, our Savior. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <laughs> 